1: Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
0: Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you
2: Calvin Baker is the author of A More Perfect Reunion, Race, Integration, and the Future of America. Calvin is the author of the critically acclaimed novels Naming the New World, Once Two Heroes, Dominion, and Grace, and has taught at Yale University, Columbia University, and the University of Leipzig, Germany. Welcome, Calvin. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss A More Perfect Reunion, Race, Integration, and the Future of America.
1: Thank you for having me, too. Pleasure to be here.
2: Great. So obviously, from the title, we get a glimpse as to what this book is about. But for those who have not read the rest of it, could you give a, more of a synopsis about what's what's in this book and why did you feel it was so important to write?
1: So the, the central thesis of the book is that we talk about race in a very performative way. and We've been talking about race in a very performative way. For a long time, and America, Americans perform a theater of racial awakening. Now they've been performing this awakening since the Revolutionary Era, since the right, the the Great Awakening, the generation leading into the Revolution, when uh, we have a race problem. And right, and it sort of gets shunted aside for these bigger concerns like, what are we going to do? We have an England problem. Too. What are we going to do about that? And then the Civil War, right? But the, right, the, the Constitution points a direct line to the Civil War. And during the Civil War, and then we can go back to that later, we have a race problem. And then the civil rights moment. And my theory is that what we really have is an integration problem. Because race is, own, race is construction, we all know that. And right, there's only so much you can talk about it. And it raises the will. But what's really fundamentally broken is that the society remains segregated. And the real problem, the, the real fear, even for the early abolitionists, was how do you integrate these folks into the rest of a society that has massive prejudices against them? And so that's what I wanted to talk about. And that's what I think we're still encountering now, even as we talk about race, the real question, the harder question, the frightening question is, well, how do you take apart these structures of racism and do that? You have to integrate people. Great. So that's a long, that's a long No,
2: there's so much to, (laughs) to go into with that, and even from the book. But I wanted to just back up and get a little more information about you. I know that you had taught at Yale, which I went to, by the way. So yeah. Go yeah, whatever. (laughs) Although I did took almost no English classes, even though I thought I wanted to be an English major. I know I just there were all these prerequisites like one twenty nine, one twenty seven, I don't know, whatever all those courses
1: major English poets. Yeah, major English English
2: poets and all that stuff. And I just like was no. I don't know. So I ended up taking all psychology classes and reading for fun on the side.
1: <laughs> you missed the best part of Yale, you? I probably did.
2: Yeah. I, you know, it was all based on this one bad class, one time freshman year. Who knows what my life would have been like? I don't know.
1: <laughs> you might be a, a book podcaster.
2: <laughs> Actually, that's not true. I did take a complex class about different things, <laughs> Proust and, you know, all the Madelines and all that stuff. Anyway, but not English. Okay, so take us back and give me more of a picture of like your background and your novel writing and all of that. And so that we have more of a context of this book.
1: Oh, that's a that's a lot. How far back do you want to go? As
2: honestly, all the way. Go as far back as you want. Where are you from? Where were you born?
1: I was born in Chicago, I am in the 70s. And growing up, at had the sense that things were changing. I talked to my grandparents about race. and They saw the world through this very racialized lens because they lived very racialized lives. And my life, my early life, I was a, a black family, I went to integrated schools or mixed schools and had the sense that things were changing and had a real impatience. With some of the both the racialized structures I'd hear, you know, in fact, like from my family, but also in the political zeitgeist and frankly in curriculums. And when I, I went to a school that would let me not take a core curriculum, I didn't go to Yale because they had a core curriculum. And I sometimes, I guess it was sometime around senior year of college, or of high school, I became very, very interested in trying to locate myself. And I went to a a super traditional high school at that time. It was an independent school, but it was very conservative in its curriculum. If they could have taught us in Latin, they would have. (laughs) And I wanted to locate my own concerns, myself as a Black person, in the literature and the histories of this country, but also the West, because we know that the, right, the forces of migration, the forces of movement around the world that we inhabit started 500 years ago. I mean, they started before that. Like, we could go back to the Renaissance world, but we won't do that because it's early in the morning. But in the modern world, beginning with the age of exploration, beginning in right, the, the slave trade and European settlement and all of these things, and so much had been erased. And I was concerned with filling in my history. And that entailed a, a journey that was rebellious for the time. Right, So I was an English major, but I was an English major kicking and screaming. One of my professors told me I was the best student of my generation. This was 20 years after the fact. But because when I was there, everyone wanted to to kill me. They didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> and because i was asking all these really difficult questions these really challenging questions and i was asking myself as well and that led to that led to my first book naming the new world and it was a novel about consciousness in my mind and the ways that a specifically african consciousness changes in the journey to america so it begins in pre-contact africa and ends in contemporary America. And I'm really concerned with these questions like, how's one changed, right, by these movements? And of course, this is, I think most Americans can relate to this because you have these ancestral stories and, right, my grandparents or great grandparents were German, but I'm not German anymore. I'm something different. And I mean, a part of me, or I can claim this Germanist, I can claim this Italianist, I can claim this Russianist, but I'm different. And so that question of change, because we think of Blackness as so monolithic and static, that led to my second book, which was called Once Two Heroes. It's about World War II, because then I have these questions about violence and European violence and violence in the collective unconsciousness of the North Atlantic, of America and of Europe, and these sort of what I saw at the time, these twin mirrors of the Holocaust and the slave trade. And right, the and I mean you can if if you study these things, and I study these things, you can right, you see there are all these parallels that are rising from well, what Frederick Douglass called the White Book of Libel, but it's really it's a it's a group of slanders and slurs that are invented once and are applied and reapplied to whoever the dominant group chooses right like these folks aren't that creative (laughs) there's a (laughs) there's a there's a single playbook i mean you can go you can see the same things apply to the Armenians. you can see it's like the same like they're this they're that they're like they're lazy or they're great right they're like either really lazy or over sex or sexless it just goes like one or two ways and it's like dot 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 and so that was the that was the second book. The third book I wanted to write about America qua America. So I wrote this book set in the pre-revolutionary period about a free black family, one of whom fights in the revolution. This is, I mean, this was a phenomena after the, the House of Burgess in the 17th century, the Virginia House of Burgess passes a law because slavery at first is such a nebulous state in America, right? We forget that it's a thing. That must be constructed. We always think, like, oh, it's always been, you know, people sat around, and they thought about how you build this. And one of the one of the early moves they make, because right, the presence of free blacks threatens the claims of of slavery. Right, you have a thriving free black community, you can't say these people are this and this and this and this, right? You and so the Virginia House of Burgess banishes free blacks from the then colony. And I mean, they're creating all these black laws, like you, right? Like the 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 child of a of an enslaved woman has to be enslaved because right? Because there's all this like race mix race mix. I'm going to use a crude term going on, and, right? You've got all these thorny problems because humanity is complex, history is complex, and we got to simplify this. We have to, and so we're going to build this thing called slavery, in which all of these. Africans, who we claim, are inferior and supposed to be supporting it to us. We need to be kept in their place so that we can keep making money. And because free labor, who can resist that? And so it's illegal for a free Black man to live in the colony of Virginia. Dominion is about a man who's emancipated on the—he's indentured and sort of finishes his term near the beginning of the time that law is passed. And so America being America, he sets out West, which then goes to what would become North Carolina. And Virginia was massive. Virginia splits three times, essentially, first Virginia into the Carolinas and then Carolina North and South. And all these splits are happening around questions that we recognize today of religion. Of commerce, are we gonna be a society of right? Are we going to be Anglican? Are we going to be what we call now evangelical? Are we going to be a society of corporate agriculture? Are we going to be a society of small businesses? So these are right, so these are some of the intersecting questions that are already playing out then. And I guess, it's why historians say things rhyme. And, and dominions about this, story, about this family, settling the land, going through the, the struggles that you go to, and like subsequent generations, of course, have different relationships, one of whom fights in the war. And I imagined it in my mind then, as, as a sort of a need like story? And Aeneid, why Aeneid? Because Aeneid, the Aeneid. See,
2: now we're going back to the same class at Yale. This is like I can't get <laughs> away from it. I'm telling you, these Yale English teachers, I don't know what it is. Always back to the classics.
1: Yeah. Everything goes back to I mean, yeah, there's a there's a reason they're fundamental. We can all we can all relate to them. But the the canny thing or the uncanny thing about Virgil as I read him is he's writing this myth of Rome at a time of collapse or it's the beginning of the collapse of splintering and so he's writing this myth from a position of knowing as opposed to naivete and that fascinated me and I wanted to the myth of America is always a legal myth it's always a naive myth and so the question is what if you shift that and you're writing from a position of knowing Right, which all that we know now, you have to you have to account for, and that that became fascinating to me. Right, the like the fact of free of free blacks in early America, the facts of these proto arguments that continue to shape us around race, around around capitalism, around religion. So that was just those right, those that was, that was catnip to my brain, then. And eventually, but all of this is right. One of the through lines of this work is I wanted to center a black consciousness in all of these works because if you read, most literature has a single use for black writing and black writers, like tell us of your struggle, tell us of your of your suffering, of your pain, and of course, blackness is larger than that. Black people are all people are larger than that. And I wanted to write from a position that wasn't marginalized, that wasn't performing myself for, for the black self for white consumption. So now I will teach you about race. Well, you know about race. You, you grew up in this country. How could you not grow about race? right? And, you know, even if you only know the boundaries of race, the lines of race racial segregation like all of these things that are and and i began to talk about these things directly in a more perfect reunion and one of the things i talked about is the way that our built environment is is segregated and right now like our, our mental our mental environments our mental landscapes are like our our epistemological systems. I shouldn't use that word this early in the morning. But right, the things that we know, but also where we live, how we live, where we go to school. And you and one I remember having an experience of being in New Haven and which I love by the way. And truly a special place. But walking to and I had a late class. And after that class I just want to sort of like decompress in nice weather. And I'd walk to the train. I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And people, you can't walk to the train. Yeah. <laughs> How, you, 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 I would you like doing? to take my
2: car out to drive to the train to pick people up. FYI. <laughs> Before and, it got broken into. And then, yeah. Oh. Well, <laughs> New Haven. Anyway. <laughs>
1: We'll come back to that. I remember. uh, We'll come back. I remember visiting. I went to. I went to high school on the University of Chicago campus. When I was applying to colleges, I was like, "Oh, look!" I was visiting Yale. I was like, "Oh, look!" A big, prestigious, wealthy university in the middle of a black ghetto. Like, I don't like. I I don't. That Uh, (laughs) I've experienced that already, and. But as a as a professor, like oh, and at first I sort of was like oh, I and I was like you're not afraid of black people, Calvin, and I'd start and so like and I just walked to the train station, but it was and I realized that my trip from my neighborhood in Brooklyn to that campus was moving from one bubble to another bubble, so moving from a space that was like racially exclusive. And I mean that it was a, it was Brooklyn, so it wasn't to the same degree. But you get on the train and you come to this other space that was, I and mean, again, like Yale isn't monoracial, but it, you know it's it's constructed in similar ways. Like oh, and they are all of these opprobrium against the other, right? And it is you can say it's class, but really it's race. And I thought. Well, we do that everywhere. The suburbs are that kind of construction. Corporations are that kind of construction. Schools are that kind of construction. And so it's not a thing, when we talk about systemic racism, it's not something that we made once and we're still like, yo, we're under the like under the weight of what a bunch of people did back in the 18th century. Something we recreate every day. And right, we we, we say subtly, don't go over there. Don't read that. Don't watch that. Don't listen to that. Don't talk to that person. And so it goes on all the time. And it's a matter of recreating not only the, I mean, the race line, yes, but really segregation. And that's what I wanted to explore. And this is the subtle part of the book, there are all of these spaces we tell ourselves are integrated. And this is what I really wanted to dive into, right? Sort of piercing the veil or what John Adams called the fig leaf of liberalism. And we have all of these spaces all that we tell ourselves are integrated. And they're they're not. They're working by a muddier formula. And so I, in the book, we look at the... We look at American politics. Right. So we look at we look at Shakespeare because I couldn't resist myself. We look at Othello and, we, and I wanted to look at something that wasn't racially inscribed in ways that are familiar to us. And also ways that are so all the slurs that Iago is using to exact his revenge or his jealousy upon Othello are the proto-slurs that we continue to know. But in Shakespeare, race isn't constructed. They're like they're gradations of skin color and, and and sort of hair texture, but there's not race. And because you're coming out of a, a sort of renaissance world and everything's really just kind of fascinating. You're like, oh, wow, they have people over here and they do things this way, and people are in there. but it ha- like, you don't have these institutions of race yet.
0: This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which,
2: Dot com slash moms don't have time
1: right and so it's why do you want to talk about uh, <laughs> <laughs> killing me so it's why when right the, the marriage between Othello and Desdemona is found out and like protestation right she lied to her father and there is no permission they petition the the prince it's like he lied he tricked me and you know Desdemona tells her story and the prince says, Eh, he would win my daughter too. And so that like that's it, right? So you don't have this like official, like these categories of race and these like inscribed prejudices. And I wanted to look at that because that's the same that's happening at the same time in England that America is being built. So it happens at the same time the first colonies are discovered here. And I wanted to look at the England that we were coming out of. We look at the revolutionary generations. We look at the Civil War, but we look at American culture, too, because I wanted to go not just chronologically sort of front to back, but also up and down the society. So we we look at sport. We look at which we tell ourselves is this fashion of integration, right? It's just your ability on the field. And I, I talk about Colin Kaepernick. I not to give lie to that because he subverts that, that story. I talk about music and specifically hip-hop. The way that it's performed, the way that it's consumed, right? You're like, oh, it's black form, or it begins as a black form, but really it needs white faces to gain acceptance. And then it needs to perform itself for whiteness to remain popular. So, and I look at film and television and right some popular shows. We look at This Is Us. We look at Atlanta, which I love. And we look at right some of the history of film. So looking at our pop culture and these spaces that we say, well, we're all present. And they're giving us, right, there's a myth of multiculturalism, of plurality that we now is, is meant to mean liberals embrace that. Isn't really so, or it's only so under very narrowly controlled circumstances, right? So I'm going to I'm like I'm going to make this myth, and it's a myth that we all aspire to, right? Because it it's enriching, and it sounds like a Supreme Court brief. When I think of you asked about my life, I think about I think about integration in the personal. You're like I wouldn't know some of my best friends. Fifty years ago, or we wouldn't right, or or a hundred years ago, wouldn't it never would have happened. So things like it becomes that person. Like, what does a world after the race line look like? It looks like one opportunity, yes, but also affinity. And we don't choose our friends because hey, they're just like us. Like you're everything is proximal, right? And you become friends with those people those persons around you with whom you have things in common and that is that's a privilege in the society because we're set but you're like oh what a richer world would it be on the other side of that and i think we have this nascent idea of that as liberals we aspire to it but only just so and you know, a joke i've been making recently is like in another context like yeah people are down with Barack and Michelle but not quite yet with Uncle Jeremiah because like oh, wait wait that's a it's a little too black it's a little too much it's a little too real and there are all of these things that we want to not hear and not know and we look at the we look at the current moment of protest of uprising, which I, which I think is the fourth significant moment of racial awakening in American history. I mean, I think it's right now. I think there's the, the Revolutionary War. I think there's a civil war. I think there's a civil rights movement. And I think there's now. I think there's something really profound going on now. And if it's sustained, really transformative, and perhaps the last time for such transformation, in a more or less civil way, but it's predicated upon documentary evidence of things that black folks have known all the time. White people didn't want to accept or grapple with because it punctures the veil of American ego. And this is again, liberals, right? This is because if you are if you're a liberal white person you're probably living an immigrant narrative my like my parents or grandparents or great right, it's the three generation story so my great grandparents or my great great grandparents came over and right, they came from they came from germany after all the like textile mills shut down everybody was unemployed and broke they came from right they came from from uh, like the yiddish belt between germany and eastern russia when right pogroms holocaust whole slew of stuff like we can take back to like the napoleonic wars they come back and i want to come back to that because
2: Calvin, there's a, we only have like two more minutes Oh, oh, oh. We have, we yeah, deep, we're going to keep coming back to like a hundred things. Zimmy, like, you have to stop me. Like, like 67 like- podcasts in a row to get to all of your thoughts. I feel terrible.
1: <laughs> they tell me this. I should be succinct. I'm not being succinct. I'm just, you're, you're sitting there and we're just like talking. Well, I'm
2: interested. I mean, I don't want to cut you off because I'm very interested in everything you have to say, but.
1: But this is a podcast. This is a, this is a, this is a podcast. Like people not have no time
2: fast. to listen to podcasts. So <laughs> we'll have to do it in install. <laughs>
1: okay, I should be more interesting. And you are more sus-
2: interesting. It's <laughs> just people only have so much time to listen, no matter how interesting it is.
1: So, but if, you, if you're a white liberal, you're like, you had this myth that like my family came from, right, came from nowhere and through hard work, they thrived in America. Beneath that, they're behind that. There are all these federal programs, right? We, like we know about like mortgage assistance, the GI Bill, All these things from which black Americans are specifically excluded as right. And that was the condition of these social programs passing. You can't include black people. I mean, this even includes like parts of social security and the ways it was administrated. And so you've right. So this like when I say it wasn't created once when we like built this thing called slavery. It's been recreated every Generation and with the like the tension of awakening, recreation. And we're going through that right now, by the way. Right? Like we're awakening, we know about police brutality, we know about systemic racism. And on the other side, you've got people fighting tooth and nail to hold on to white supremacy, to hold on to a colonial myth and mentality. And like a you know, pundits. Oh, it's about class, about this, about it's about whiteness, pure and simple. And because it's become so deep in the identity and the psyche, and people are like, what would I be if I gave this up? And they don't know. And they're threatened by it. And so tooth and nail. Well, we, we're Americans, but if it means that we not, might not have white power, let's strip folks of voting rights right? Let's strip people of legal protection. So that's, that's when I say the challenge isn't really knowing about race and racial awakening. It's really integrating all of these institutions, because that's the only way you deconstruct it.
2: Amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Calvin, we will come back to more at some point in our lives. But for now, a more perfect reunion, Calvin Baker. Synopsis, Thank you. thoughts.
1: Thank you, Jimmy. All
2: right. Have a great day. That was awesome. Thank you. you too. Thank okay. you. Okay. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.